Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Just uh, seeing people entering the webinar, so we'll get started in uh, a minute or two. Thanks to everyone for joining us this morning. Okay, given that we have a lot of material to get through and uh, no doubt some questions and uh, discussion at the end of things, uh, we'll get started and people can join as they, um, as they can. Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to another free CC Partners live webinar. Uh, if you're not watching us live, then you are watching or listening to episode 22 of the Lawyers for Employers broadcast brought to you by CC Partners. My name is Kelsey Orth. I'm a partner here at CC Partners. I'm joined today by two of my colleagues, Arjun Deer and Charles Bins. Uh, for those of you who are meeting us for the first time today, CC Partners is a boutique labor and employment firm exclusively advising and representing employers. Uh, we are lawyers for employers. When we're not working remotely, our flagship office is located in downtown Brampton, Ontario, and we also have offices in Barrie and Sudbury. We are located online at www.ccpartners.ca. This is also the latest in our focused series of employment law issues relating to COVID-19. So before we do get started, if you have questions as we go, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen and we'll address as many of them as we can in the Q&A portion at the end of the webinar. Our uh, dedicated articling student, Brandon Lowell, is working behind the scenes to monitor and uh, assimilate all the questions into this. So hopefully we can address as many of them as we go as we can. And if not, we'll, uh, as I said, have that discussion at the end of things. So with that said, if we can turn to the next slide, please. And, and Kelsey, before we get started, I know there was one quick question we had come through just asking about the difference between today's webinar and tomorrow's on construction. So if you wanna just differentiate that a little bit. Sure. Today's webinar is a, a more general discussion with respect to all sectors of the economy and types of industries and employers, whereas tomorrow is focused solely on the construction industry and the different uh, approaches or considerations necessary for employers in the reopening stages um, in Ontario. So um, if you're a construction employer, and you can't attend tomorrow, that's absolutely fine. Just recognize that you may want to check in with the uh, materials once they're posted on our website from tomorrow's session in order to make sure that you've uh, uh, you know, got those different uh, considerations and, and any nuanced uh, changes in mind as well. Thanks, Arjun. No problem. So here's our agenda. We've got, uh, we're going to do a quick review of Ontario's three-step reopening plan, which uh, has been accelerated to begin on Friday of this week, much to the delight of uh, patio owners and patio goers, um, among other businesses. Uh, we're gonna review Ontario's temporary paid sick, paid sick leave program, excuse me. <clears throat> we're gonna talk about effectively 
managing a return to in-office or on-premise work. We're going to talk about refusals uh, in returning to work. Talk a little bit about COVID-19 testing practices, vaccine policies, which is uh, a hot and uh, widely debated and discussed topic. And then we're going to talk about how to manage unvaccinated clients, contractors, or third parties attending at your workplace. So as I said, a lot of stuff to get through. Uh, we will be able to post a recording of this on our website after, uh, well, it probably won't get up today, um, but um, shortly thereafter. So if there's anything that, that you missed, feel free to come back and listen to it again. And as we said, uh, use the Q&A function rather than the chat function for any questions you might have. All right. With that being said, I will turn it over to Charles. Okay, thanks, Kelsey. So um, I think my portion of the webinar today is going to be largely review for a lot of people, at least hopefully it is. If it's not, that's that's fine too. You can always feel free to ask questions if there's any gaps in your understanding. Um, it also wouldn't be a COVID webinar if at least one of us didn't have a ridiculous COVID haircut. So I'm glad I could bring that um, to the party for everyone today. So the first thing we're going to talk about here is this Ontario's reopening plan. Um, this is about the second or third one that they've announced now. They've done it in various different ways. So it'd be understandable if there was a little bit of confusion about how they plan on doing this. So first, a little bit of history, just in terms of this, this most recent reopening plan. Um, so the emergency break for the third wave was announced on April 3rd. And then that's when all these restrictions came back in after a brief reopening. And they're all very similar, if not the same, to previous restrictions, which were announced earlier. And then, of course, since the emergency break has been in effect, we've come a long way. Um, vaccination rates have increased significantly, and that's really the focus of the reopening plan from here on out is the vaccination rates. Um, so just, just yesterday, I guess it was June 7th, uh, the province announced that this reopening plan, which was originally scheduled to begin on June 14th, would be moved up three days to June 11th. Uh, so now that's Friday, so we're, we're opening up sooner than anticipated which is always a good thing. Um, just in case you're wondering about the technical aspect, so the, the reopening plan, you know, where the authority comes for these restrictions and how things are gonna roll out, you can find in a piece of legislation called the uh, Reopening Ontario, a flexible response to COVID-19 Act. And then many of the actual restrictions, if you're concerned about your specific sector, what those specific restrictions are um, and how they're laid out in that legislation, you can actually find them in a regulation under that statute, which is regulation 8820, uh, which has to do with reopening under phase one or step one, I forget exactly how they phrase it. And it has everything laid out sector specific, how this is all gonna play. Um, another thing I wanna mention in addition to the reopening plan, this might come up a little later, is that the government actually announced an extension to the infectious disease emergency leave, uh, the deeming aspect of that. So. For those of you who are aware, there's infectious disease emergency leave, which employees can qualify for if they meet the criteria under the Employment Standards Act. But for those employees who've had to lay people off or have had, you know, suffered a, a slowdown in work, so people aren't making what they used to or aren't working with they, the hours that they used to, the, the government changed the legislation to deem those employees to be on an emergency leave. And then there was a, an end date to that uh, just to make sure that no one was 
deemed to be terminated and losing their job. They were just deemed to be on this leave and the government has extended the deeming provision up until September. So again, we might get into that a little bit later. And if you have questions about that, of course, you can answer or ask them um, in the question and answer period. Um, so you can see here generally this, so the, the portion on the left, the yellow portion, that's taken directly from the Ontario government. And this is kind of how they lay it out. So there's three phases to this plan. The number one factor that they're going to consider in all the phases has to do with the vaccination rates. So you can see here in phase one, in order to get into phase one, so go from lockdown to phase one, they wanted 60% adults with one dose. Um, we have surpassed, I think we're up over 70% now in the province. So that's one of the reasons why they decided to move it up. And then you have um, these other factors that they'll consider and they don't get nearly as specific with those, for example, they term them other key indicators, which are hospitalizations, uh, ICU occupancy, that kind of thing. So it's very general, makes it a little bit difficult to predict whether or not they'll move from phase one to phase two. So hopefully um, they'll be making timely announcements to make sure everyone can adjust themselves accordingly. So again, here you can see just at the bottom of the left there, um, it's very gradual opening up. So outdoor events and um, limits on who can be together outside are expanded in phase one. And as we go through the steps of the reopening plan, it kind of expands from there. So if we can go to the next slide, please. So here again, you just have um, information directly from the government, um, easy enough to find online. If anyone wanted to look for something a little more detailed, you can see phase two here. Um, so you can see here to get into phase two, we have to have 70% of adults with one dose. And again, I believe we're already there. 20% uh, of adults in the province fully vaccinated. Um, the province has said that they will not consider moving from one step to the next step until at least 21 days have passed. So you can add that kind of caveat in here as well. And then again, you have their general consideration about the key indicators in terms of ICU occupancy rates and hospitalizations and all that other thing. Um, and then again, you just kind of see here, it's just, you know, expanding on step one, the limits for who can be outside, go up a little bit, the types of events that you can hold outside, go up a little bit, um, capacity limits at retail stores and other types of operations go up a little bit. It's just a slow kind of iterative process as we go through step, step, step. So on the next slide, again, you can see step three. And again, here we have the goal of a, a vaccination rate of 78, 70 to 80% first dose with 25% of adults in Ontario fully vaccinated. Again, you have the 21 days, we have to be in step two for 21 days before the government will even consider moving to step three. And then they have the consideration of the other key indicators, um, which isn't entirely clear how they're gonna do that. And I think they keep it general um, on purpose. And again, we're gonna kind of understand why that is. So. Again, you can see here, if everything goes perfectly well, um, when we get through step one in 21 days, we get through step two in 21 days, the earliest possible date we can find ourselves in step three would be July 23rd, 2021. So uh, I think everyone's hoping that we can do that. Um, and, then, and then again, it's just a, you know, a natural kind of expansion, larger indoor gatherings, larger outdoor gatherings, types of things that you can do will expand. They haven't been specific about what capacity limits might be in terms of indoor operations, whether it's you know retail or service industry or whatever the case may be. 
Um, the other thing to note, and I don't think anyone will be surprised by this, is that the government specifically has, you know, warned everyone that things change. I think we've all gotten used to kind of constant change for, over the last year and a half. So this is their plan, but any one of these issues or vaccination rate targets or whatever the case may be is subject to change. We just kind of have to hope that we get timely notice so that we can make the adjustments as soon as we can. So that's the reopening plan. Um, so one of the next slide, one of the things that we've come along with this, and this came a little later um, in the, uh, the pandemic um, after facing enormous pressure to institute this, the government finally instituted this temporary paid sick leave uh, before you had access to unpaid leave three days under the ESA and you have that all the time available to any employee. And now they've gone and taken the step see here through Bill 284, the COVID-19 Putting Workers First Act, um, which allowed for three of those days to be paid. Uh, and that happened on April 29, 2021. So many of you have made, perhaps already received claims for paid leave or had to operationalize this in your own operations. Um, so hopefully that's gone smoothly. Um, you can see that the bill temporarily entitles employees to three days of paid infectious disease emergency leave and employers with a corresponding reimbursement for any payments made. So the employer pays first and then they actually apply to the WSIB to get that reimbursed. And you can see for those of you who hadn't had to do this already, we've included a link to the WSIB application page down at the bottom of the slide there. Um, so if you haven't had a chance to look at that, probably a good idea to just take a couple minutes and, and check it out and see what the application process is like. Um, so, you know, the obvious question would be, when would an employee be entitled to a leave like this? Because there are some very specific guidelines under the act that have to be met before an employee will be entitled to them. So essentially an employee has to be not performing the duty of their position because one or more of the following reasons. And there's five different reasons why that would be. So the first is that the employees under an an individual medical investigation, supervision, or treatment related to, in this case, COVID-19. Second is that the employee is acting in accordance with an order under the Health Protection and Promotion Act. So something's happened, maybe they're in an industry um, or a sector where an order has been made under that act to close the facility down or something broader than that. So if they're off work for that reason, they would qualify for the three paid days. Um, third is that essentially the employee has been affected directly by COVID. So whether they have it and they're in quarantine or they're suspected of having it and they need to go get tested and they have to take time off before they can do that. That would be the third reason why they would qualify for this. Fourth is that the employees under a direction from the employer to stay home for a COVID related reason. And you can imagine there'd be a number of reasons, you know, it could be an outbreak or suspected um, close contact with someone, whatever the case may be, it depends on the workplace. And then finally, um, an employee is providing care to any one of a number of individuals who are listed in the act for essentially the same reasons as they would be entitled to take the leave themselves. So that's if they're sick, if they're quarantined, if they're isolating, all those reasons. <clears throat> um, I should mention that this, this entitlement is retroactive. Um, I don't believe there's any kind of limit on the timeline that employees can actually apply for it. So. Um, just because you haven't gotten an application for something yet doesn't mean that you won't get one sooner in the future for three days that occurred in the past. Um, 
and then so the amount of pay is a little a little tricky essentially it's the lesser of two hundred dollars and either the wages they would have earned or calculation for performance related wages so i think for most employers it's it's not going to be an issue it's just the wages that they would have earned for the day but if you get into if you have kind of unique structured compensation plans or an employee makes a significant amount of money per day then those issues can be a little bit trickier now, of course employers can require evidence that's reasonable in the circumstances of an employee's entitlement to this leave so you know you have to be a little bit careful there because you can't necessarily ask for a doctor's note or anything like that although it depends on the circumstances generally if an employee can you know, just give you some sort of document or they have someone that can vouch for them. Generally, it's probably going to be good enough for them to be entitled. So you just have to be careful about any kind of requests that you're making there. And then uh, again, last thing for anyone who hasn't um, had a chance to look at the WSIB application process, we have a link down there at the bottom. So you can check that out just so you can be prepared. Okay, so if we're moving on to the next slide. So again, this is, I think we've all been doing this for quite some time, considerations in post-pandemic workplace. So for those of you who have physical workplaces where employees need to be returning to workplaces, uh, to the, like the physical location, and even for any employers who are able to work remotely, um, considerations in terms of policies that you have in place and you know just how you account or track employee movement in and out of the office, it's, it's all different and it's all going to be around for the foreseeable future. So as always, uh, keep up to date and ensure compliance with public health guidelines as amended. So no matter where your business is, there's a public health authority website that you can go on to and they have, in my experience, generally pretty good guidance about what kind of restrictions have to be in place, what kind of extra steps employers have to take to protect employees in the workplace. Um, consider protocols for accessing the workplace. So whether you have self-reporting obligations, many employers will have employees fill out screening forms, whether they're electronic or physical, uh, before they come in. Um, and then you have, there's record keeping requirements for that. Um, so some of them, some of them have temperature screening. Um, it all depends. Um, kind of along with that, you have to consider what PPE is necessary. So I'm sure for any employer that has been open, they have masks, gloves, face shields, uh, whatever's appropriate for your place of work. If that's not something that you have in place yet, it's certainly something that you want to consider. Um, and then you have kind of policy restrictions. So limiting the number of people maybe that can be in an office at any given time. So if you have, you know, if you need some people to be in the office, but some people can work from home, there should be a policy or a schedule for rotation of employees so that there's no confusion about who can be in the office when and what has to be done um, if you for example, you're approaching a, a capacity limit in a workplace that one of those applies to. Um, staggering lunches, staggering start and end times, and doing anything that you can to encourage physical distancing, um, certainly with masks inside. And uh, more and more, I see, you know, operations that can operate outside, encouraging masks outside, even if physical distancing can be. So you have to remember too that a lot of these public health guidelines are kind of minimum considerations. You can go above and beyond. You can do anything. You have other obligations, for example, under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. So if it's something that you think needs to be in place to encourage or protect 
employees while they're working in the workplace, then um, you know those public health guidelines are a floor and you can certainly go above and beyond that to any extent that you want. And then finally, of course, like anything in a legal context, you want to document all your measures taken. You want to have all your policies and procedures posted in the workplace. So if you've had any changes made policies and procedures on a go forward basis, you want to make sure that you're, you're making the changes in the policy, you're highlighting them, you're providing them to employees, you're asking them to read and acknowledge that they are aware of the changes. Um, if there are any infractions of those, you want to make sure that you're recording that and you have it all somewhere where it's easily accessible, both for your own protection from a liability perspective and in case um, you get, a, for example, a ministry inspection, you want to be able to go to them quickly and show we have, you know, all of our documents in order. Here's all of our policies, all that kind of thing. So, like I said, kind of, kind of a review, hopefully, anyways, but it's always good to make sure you're going over these things and go on to the next slide. So this is just a little more focused on policies and procedures. So this is kind of like what I was saying before. Many of you, I'm sure, had health and safety policies and procedures before. Throughout the last year and a half, you may have amended those. You may, you, you may not have. You may have just put things in place. So for example, if I know everything's happens quickly, so you may have been in a, a place where you were reacting and implementing things, but not going back and changing your policy. Well, I think now is the time to review those policies and make sure that everything that is happening in practice is actually reflected in those policies. You know, whether it's um, something temporary that could be removed later, or if you just want something more permanent there, it's always nice to have something that you can point to, A, in case the ministry comes around, and B, just to make sure that employees are doing the same thing and that they know what the expectations are. Um, and then of course, so consider updating and or creating various employee policies. So it's just about considering which kind of policies might need to be updated. So maybe you've instituted a new pandemic policy, that's all well and good, but you haven't touched the sick time policy. And maybe you have some amendments that you've made there for, um, so I, some employers are extending the ability to you know use sick time if you're going to get vaccinated or if you're looking after someone who's in isolation. Those are all considerations for every individual employer, but you just wanna make sure that you're updating these policies if you need to. Um, so for particularly those in the service industry, clients and visitors in the workplace, how are you dealing with them? How are you documenting them? Are they doing a COVID survey? What is the survey? Is it different from what employees are filling out? Those are all considerations that you have to take into account. Uh, use and return to company property and equipment policy and work from home policy. So a lot of people are just, you know, sent their employees home because they had to. Um, and maybe they just, they've been kind of trying to figure it out on the fly and they've got something in place now that works. That's good. And then, you know, that's what you'd be expected to do in order to react to something like that. But you want to make sure that you're going back now and you're putting it in a policy in paper so that everyone knows what the expectations are going forward. Um, you know, and, and then of course, Anytime you're implementing a new policy or changing a new policy, you have to be doing training on these policies to make sure that they're understood. And that's key to making sure that they can be enforced if they need to be later on. And then finally, um, other than policy procedures, ensuring employment agreements are up to date for flexibility and things that we've seen as a result of COVID. So first of all, making sure that employment agreements cover things like temporary layoffs. Um, so that if you get to a point where you're being shut down, you have the legal authority to lay someone off. You don't have to rely on the government to amend the legislation again or extend the, the deemed um, 
infectious disease emergency leave like they had to before, and you've got something in place that you can rely on. Um, and then there's, I suppose, other issues are, um, you know, flexibility for terminations. You may want to consider having work from home arrangements, whether it's policy or it's in a contract, um, maintaining the right to implement or end working from home arrangements, however you want to do that. So it's not just the policies and the practice in place. It's about thinking ahead, both for current employees and for new employees and making sure that you have those legal rights in place that you can rely on in case we end up, we do end up in a fourth wave and things get shut down again. So with that, uh, like I said, I think that was mostly review um, and I'll hand it off to Arjun for contingency plan. Right, thanks, Charles. And uh, yeah, you ended on the right point with the, and I hate that you're saying it, but the fourth wave, <laughs> I, I hate to even think about that because we're we're finally getting into the stage one of the reopening uh, this Friday. So, uh, I, you know, it's tough to talk about a fourth wave, but, you know, as we've seen, this has been a very unpredictable time. So, you know, I think one of the lessons learned for many employers throughout this pandemic was, is to plan and prepare for the worst case scenario uh, while we all sit here hoping for the best case scenario. Um, you know, employers should never be placed in a compromising situation uh, without, you know, the proper planning uh, ahead of time. And that's kind of what we're here for as lawyers is to kind of, you know, help you in the in the in the present, but also think about the future. Uh, so this is why we actually advise employers to start creating a contingency plan or, you know, a plan B in the event there is a future business disruption. This plan should outline the steps the employer would take in the event of another mandatory shutdown or, you know, a fourth wave uh, directed by the government or any other regulatory body. Uh, we think that doing this will ensure that employers are well equipped uh, should another pandemic or, you know, another emergency occur. Because, you know, we never thought there'd be a, or at least I personally never thought there'd be a pandemic in my lifetime. We've read about them from 100 years ago, but uh, I thought we were past that but something else to this uh, effect might happen in the future. And, you know, if you have the policies and the employment agreements updated, uh, you'll feel a lot better rather than being caught off guard as, you know, pretty much everyone was uh, during this instance. So, you know, with that, with that said, you know, we finally have the government uh, cutting the red tape and, and we all feel prepared uh, to reopen the workplace. Uh, but we've had employers come to us and say, you know, the only problem now is that we have one or more employees who refuse to return. Uh, so before you move to discipline or worse yet terminate, which we've seen a lot of employers come to us and say, you know, if they don't want to come back, that's fine. We'll just terminate them. Uh, you know, we recommend taking a step back and consider if the employee's work refusal falls under, you know, one of the three categories listed on this slide. So the first thing to consider is, you know, is this work refusal related to a safety concern in your workplace? So when we're looking at that consideration, um, it's important to understand that under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, employees have the right to refuse work if they believe there's a risk in the workplace to their health and safety. So generally in the workplace, this involves concerns over the usage of machines or other work processes. However, during these unprecedented times, an argument may be made that risk to exposure to COVID is a reasonable health and safety concern. So, in the event of a health and safety related work refusal, employers are, you know, really just required to investigate the concern and follow the work refusal guidelines of uh, that's been provided by the provincial health and safety legislation. That's really your duty under under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. So another consideration is, you know, if the employee is, is entitled to a job protected leave of absence. This is something that requires a larger discussion and, and we'll discuss that on the next slide. 
And finally, uh, a select group of employees may have a legitimate human rights protected reason for being unable to return. And, and really, no matter what the justification is, your employee's request to be absent really requires a holistic approach. We recommend keeping an open line of communication with the employee uh, to really understand why exactly they're unable to return and to discuss possible options with them uh, to try to figure out how we can get them back in the workplace. When you're thinking about your duty to accommodate, it, it really involves considering requests before making a final decision. So this slide lists off the job protected leave of absences that employers should be aware of. Um, and then these are the ones that, you know, you don't really have a choice. If they come to you with one of these listed here, you, you kind of have to accommodate them, right? So uh, the first one, uh, it goes without saying that anyone that's suffering or potentially suffered from COVID, they, you know, they must be medically cleared before they can return to your workplace. And this is not only for that employee safety, but for the rest of your staff and yourself as well, right? So the second one to consider is that, you know, staff may refuse to return. And, and this is probably the most common one we're seeing due to child or other family care obligations. Uh, this is one of the most common justifications and we've come across uh, uh, numerous times during the pandemic and the leave in this regard is actually job protected in many provinces, including, you know, in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, and of course, Ontario as well. And, and you know, when it comes to daycares and schools, you know, while they've been allowed to reopen, some have elected to actually stay closed or other parents have said, you know, they're, they fear sending their children to daycare or, or child facilities too soon uh, because, you know, child goes to the facility, they might be exposed to COVID, but not only that, they might expose the parents to COVID as well. And, you know, and, and, and on it goes. So it, it might not be a risk that's worthy in the, in the circumstances. So employers need to balance being compassionate and meeting business needs while remembering that, you know, child and family care obligations they actually constitute protection under the human rights code uh, under family status. So in this regard, employers are encouraged to consult with the staff member to identify you know, the potential accommodation options, uh, such as uh, a flexible work schedule, uh, variable or part-time hours, anything that you can you know, have the employee come in, feel comfortable and, um, and not just you know, say steadfast, I, I can't return at all, right? And lastly, when you're considering travel, uh, the main thing to remember here is that employees may still experience difficulties and delays when returning to the company. Uh, and it's also important to consider that the 14-day the self-isolation is still in place as of today. Um, personally, as someone who loves to travel, I'm hoping they reduce it to seven or three days so that I can actually go on a trip. But uh, as of now, we're, we're still in that 14 days and I believe the hotel is still in place. So there are a lot of hindrances towards traveling. So if someone does go on a trip, uh, you can expect them to be out of the workplace for quite a while. You know, one uh, justification we don't have listed here is, is that uh, someone might be classified as a vulnerable population. So a staff member may refuse to return to work uh, as they're part of a vulnerable population. Uh, if they're part of a, if they're a higher risk for a severe illness due to COVID, due to an underlying medical condition, a weakened immune system or age. And, and this reason actually falls under a job protected leave in the, in the province that introduced uh, job protected COVID-19 legislation. Um, so for these employees, we, we really recommend taking a, a really careful approach, right? We recommend providing remote, remote work options and, you know, if anything, bringing them back later in the transition phase. So, you know, maybe instead of on Friday at part one, you wait till part three to bring them back completely uh, when, you know, maybe they've gotten their second dose and a lot of other people have as well, right? Um, but, you know, 
when you're dealing with these people, uh, your real recommendation is to follow the provincial guidelines uh, because, like I said, it's job protected. So they give pretty great guidance on that. And, and of course, we're always available to, to help bounce some ideas off too. So now we've talked, now that we talked about what employees can say, let's talk about what isn't considered legitimate. So, uh, and some of these are quite silly, uh, really, in, in my view, and, and, and would be challenging for me to actually take seriously. But so for starters, staff members who use public transit uh, to commute to and from work, they may be fearful of being exposed to COVID, which honestly is understandable. There's tons of people going on the public transit. Uh, there's people who hate wearing masks and, and you know, it'd make me worried personally if I was uh, taking the bus or, or the train. Uh, but unfortunately, there's actually no public health advice recommending that individuals avoid using public transit. So, you know, staff members with these challenges uh, are really required to make necessary arrangements to get to and from work. So it's, it's not deemed to be a, a reasonable um, justification. Um, and as discussed previously, a common justification we have come across is with people just being, you know, overly concerned of their health and safety. And, um, you know, while the pandemic has caused justifiable fear and anxiety about, you know, health and well-being and being around other people, uh, fear alone of potential exposure is not an adequate reason to refuse work. Whether the work refusal is justified will actually just depend on the measures taken by the employer uh, to protect the health and safety and respond to any uh, concerns of, uh, of, of, you know, being unsafe. So unless the employee has a justified reason other than, you know, a really unsubstantiated fear of the virus, you should make it clear that the, the absolute expectation is for them to return to your workplace. And if they still refuse, um, well, I would say reach out to us at that point, because this is when things start getting a little dicey, but you'd really have to make it clear that uh, the absence is to be deemed a job abandonment and it's really essentially a resignation because you have a job available for them and they don't want to return to it. And, and it's not really justified. Um, you know, staff members may also refuse to return if they live in a multi-generational household or have, you know, someone who's immune compromised at home who, who might be at higher risk if they, if they do contract COVID. So these individuals are obviously fearful of exposing uh, these, these more higher risk individuals to the virus. But, you know, it's important to note there is actually a legislative difference between living with an individual who is considered vulnerable and taking care of them. So whereas living with a vulnerable individual is not job protected, taking care of them may fall under a job protected leave. So, you know, despite it not being job protected, you know, living with a vulnerable individual, we do recommend that employers, you know, just take a practical approach and provide creative options to this employee to minimize exposure, right? You wouldn't want to have... Um, someone come into the workplace, contract COVID, bring it home and, and uh, you know, kind of have that on your hands. So if there is an option available, uh, uh, we recommend trying to give some remote work or, or, you know, lesser hours or, you know, real staggered hours for this, for these employees, especially. So there are general principles we recommend when, uh, when you're faced with an accommodation request, right? So uh, the first thing to think about is, you know, in, there's, there's questions to ask when you can ask, what you can expect to receive, and, and it really depends on why you're seeking medical information in the first place. So that's really the great first place to step. You need to establish why you're asking for this information in the first place and what information is actually permissible to request, right? So, you know, putting in the circumstance, if someone uh, is asking for a COVID-19 leave, uh, it's pretty obvious that um, 
you'll need just information about why they need that, that leave, whether it's to be taking care of someone who has COVID or if it's them themselves who have COVID. And, um, and there's actually in the legislation, which we'll discuss later, there's uh, information that you're allowed to request in this regard. So employees, uh, in, in this regard, employees don't even really actually know what is available most of the time and, uh, and, and what the rules are surrounding the infectious disease emergency leave. So we recommend that employers be proactive and they seek out information first so that they are aware of their, of their rights and obligations and the restrictions on what they're allowed to ask for. Um, and this is recommended to be done before uh, that, well, or in the process that the leave is requested. Uh, because, you know, trying to do so after the fact can be quite challenging. And, and employers also need to be aware when not even just with COVID-19, but just in general, when we're talking about accommodation, you're never really entitled to know a specific diagnosis or treatment plan. Um, but you are allowed to ask kind of what's reasonable in the circumstances, right? So in this regard, that uh, employers should always remember that they're only entitled to the information that's necessary to fulfill the duty to accommodate uh, and to allow them to keep the workplace, you know, hazard free. So you really shouldn't be overstepping. It should be just finding out, you know, if it's justified that they're off and then what you can do to make sure that it's not gonna, that, that you're not gonna kind of exacerbate their, their, their disability. So there are generally four instances when an employer has the right to request medical information, right? So the first is what we discussed previously is, is when there's a request for accommodation. Uh, so at this time, employers have the right to learn more about the employee's restrictions and limitations. And we generally re uh, recommend using like something like a functional abilities form or, or a similar type form, uh, which has really pointed questions and uh, that kind of weave in and out of what you're allowed to ask. And this uh, really allows the employer to get a really holistic view on what is appropriate accommodation uh, to really allow this employee to continue working and, and you can accommodate their disability. Uh, the second instance relates to when an employee goes off on sick leave or, you know, on that infectious disease emergency leave. So under this circumstance, an employer may require the employee to provide a medical note from a qualified health practitioner that is reasonable in the circumstances. However, you know, the employer needs to remember you can only ask for certain information in this regard. So the legislation says that you can only ask for the expected duration of the absence, the date when they were treated by the health professional, and whether they're treated or seen by this health professional in person or you know, by, by telephone or, or otherwise, right? So this obviously uh, in turn means that the employer can't ask for information about the diagnosis or treatment of, of the employee's medical condition. So the other two instances uh, listed on here relate to statutory leaves and negotiated leaves. And in my view, they, they tend to be highly fact specific. And in many cases, they don't even relate to personal medical issues, right? So. In these instances, um, we ask employers to step back and ask yourselves, you know, is, is my request, is, is it really gonna be considered reasonable in these circumstances? Uh, is it reasonable for me to request further documentation to substantiate the request? And, you know, at this stage, if you're unsure, it's likely best to reach out to your legal advisor uh, and, and we'll walk you through how to respond to this absence. So now we'll turn it over to Kelsey, who's, who's gonna get into the more nitty gritty on COVID-19 testing and vaccination practices. And, and I think he's actually gonna preemptively answer a lot of the questions that are gonna come through um, very shortly. Thank you, Arjun. So yeah, let's start with testing practices. Um, with the greater availability, we'll call it, of the uh, rapid tests, particularly, and, and the government um, at least the federal government making them available and, and uh, provincial governments. And in fact, I've seen 
an email or two from uh, chambers of commerce or uh, boards of trade going around that at least a couple of them are making those resources available to their members, uh, rapid testing kits that is. When is it reasonable and, and when should you have uh, COVID-19 testing in your workplace? Well, if there's been an outbreak and you're looking to uh, get people back into work, absolutely makes sense to mandate testing in, in that case. Um, likewise, if we're talking about somebody who has been exposed, for instance, you have your screening form and someone answers that uh, they have been exposed, then obviously it stands to reason that they need to return a, uh, a test showing negative before they can be let back in. And, and even if they're symptomatic too, you could use those um, tests. Now, whether you want to be administering those tests as, a, as an employer is a, another question perhaps, but certainly at the very least you can say, hey, you need to return a test. And, and I know for instance, um, you know, some of our, our uh, childcare clients, for instance, would have that policy in place with respect to, um, you know, attendees of the of the daycares right now, right? If, if um, somebody shows symptoms or if they've been exposed and that answer comes in the screening form, um, then that child is not returning until they've, um, you know, met the requirements, which often require either a negative test and sometimes symptom-free or, um, you know, the 14-day period being away from the workplace um, in the, or you know, the, the facility for, in the case of a client. But, you know, it's, it's absolutely reasonable to hold someone out if they do refuse that test in those circumstances um, because that's what the government has set as the guidelines, right? If you um, are showing symptoms or if you have faced exposure, then the public health guidelines dictate that you either get a test or you, you know, remain away from the workplace for 14 days. Um, another element, if you're considering it as an employer, uh, in terms of especially if you want to administer or have access to rapid test kits yourself, is you know as a complementary piece um, to vaccination policies, right? If you have for instance, um, you know, if you're in a vulnerable sector, whether that be you know healthcare or uh, congregate care or congregate living type situation, um, you know, whether it be uh, a shelter, assisted living, um, daycare type situations, if there are issues, whether it be a fourth wave or um, or other indicators that uh, you know the, the danger is higher once again with respect to COVID exposure, then in conjunction with a vaccination policy, rapid testing or testing in general might be a good option. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about vaccination policies um, as we move on to the next slide. <clears throat> so under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, employers are required to take all reasonable precautions to ensure a safe work environment. That's section 25 sub 2H. And then that's 
you know, a kind of catch-all provision that says, as an employer, you need to make sure that your employees are safe. Um, as Arjun mentioned, it often, in the context of work refusals, it often uh, applies or is taken to apply generally to, <clears throat> um, sorry, I've got a note to, uh, to speak up. And I apologize, I'm usually using a headset, but it's uh, not functioning today. So I will speak up and um, just say that typically, as Arjun mentioned, in the context of work refusals, occupational health and safety is generally thought of as referring to the processes, machines, that kind of thing that you encounter in a workplace. But when we're talking about a pandemic health risk, uh, it brings it into a new context, right? So the requirement to take all reasonable precautions has to include some type of way to address COVID-19 in terms of risk, exposure, and addressing what happens if, if it is present in your workplace. Interestingly, Section 26 of the Occupational Health and Safety Act references things that, while not specific to COVID, could certainly be seen to apply in the COVID or in the pandemic context. So at section 26, we have sections H to K, and those talk about a medical surveillance program for the benefit of workers, uh, safety related medical examinations and tests as prescribed, so not prescribed uh, here or yet, but it's certainly contemplated. Um, and if prescribed, only permit a worker to be in the workplace who has undergone the necessary examinations or tests. So when they say prescribed, that means that a regulation has to be made. So it remains to be seen whether, um, you know, like for instance, other immunization requirements that typically go along with, you know, attendance at school for, for instance, um, might be built into our response or our ongoing dealing with COVID-19 in the future. Um, what we don't have from any government, at least in Canadian jurisdictions, is, and certainly in Ontario, a statement saying everybody needs to be vaccinated. Um, we did have, at the end of May, uh, an announcement from the Ministry of Long-Term Care and the headline from the Ontario government news release said, Ontario mandates immunization policies for long-term care homes. And those three, the, th the three options given under this directive from the ministry were that every staff member had to do, had to do one of the following, provide proof of vaccination of each dose, that's one, two, provide a documented medical reason for not being vaccinated, that's two, or three, participate in an educational program about the benefits of vaccination and the risks of not being vaccinated. So you still aren't mandating vaccination, but every employer is required to have a policy in order to ensure that it's at least being addressed, right, with your staff. Um, it would be a lot easier for everybody if the government were to come out and say, you know what, we're gonna make this mandatory. Vaccination is mandatory other than the human rights considerations that, uh, that we're aware about with respect to accommodation, but they haven't done that. They haven't done that for any sector. 
um, not even at, you know, kind of frontline healthcare workers or even in those long-term care homes. Uh, a little bit frustrating and, and to many, it seems a little bit, uh, I don't know, counterintuitive that you wouldn't mandate that, but um, that means that in most circumstances, a mandatory vaccination policy uh, is going to be a kind of an uphill climb for an employer to introduce. You don't have the requirement of the government saying you have to be mandated. So now we're talking about an employer. And you know, referencing the Occupational Health and Safety Act, we're taking every reasonable precaution. That's what an employer is going to say. And we're going to say, and we know that the best defense based on science is vaccination and the highest rate of vaccination we can achieve. So that's kind of the justification we've heard from employers when introducing mandatory vaccination policies. <clears throat> um, I haven't yet seen any tested in litigation. Uh, whether they can or not be enforced, um, you know, in most circumstances, it's, it's gonna be tough to justify a mandatory vaccination policy, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. Um, it just, as you see on the slide, it's kind of considered a drastic measure when we are asking people to undertake medical procedures or a medical act uh, as it's defined under uh, the appropriate legislation such as the Nursing Act. So uh, if we can go to the next slide, some of the things we can do with our vaccination policies for sure is, you know, Arjun mentioned what we can ask for when asking for medical information. And in this case, there are certainly certain workplace settings where the fact of vaccination or not is going to be relevant. Um, because if you are in a you know, congregate care setting, let's say, and you have employees, some of whom have been vaccinated, some of, some of whom have, been, have not been vaccinated, you're going to have different levels of exposure depending on the clients you're working with, uh, a potential exposure, I should say. Should say. You're going to have those um, contingency plans or emergency plans that you need to be ready to implement if an outbreak occurs. And in order to know who can do what when an outbreak occurs, you need to know who has the protection of vaccination and at what level they do. So certainly, you know, while you may not normally ask, um, hey, you know, what have you done from a medical treatment perspective lately? In the context of the pandemic and responding to concerns that arise out of the pandemic, in certain, work, in certain workplaces, absolutely, at this point, um, proof of vaccination is, is certainly something that employers are gonna consider. Um, you see it there, the healthcare, childcare, vulnerable sectors, you can probably have uh, a little bit more leeway in terms of asking for that information than other employers who don't have the necessary or the, the same kinds of um, you know, potential consequences and or who can more easily distance people at work in some of the measures that, um, that we heard about earlier in terms of rotating and staggering shifts and uh, more distance in the workplace. <clears throat> um, another thing that we can certainly do with vaccination policies is if you're providing time off to receive 
whether it's first dose, second dose, you can absolutely require reasonable proof that the appointment has been attended, right? It's, it, that is the um, eligibility requirement for getting that paid time off. <clears throat> so uh, next slide is, is back to the idea of requirements or, or mandatory vaccination. Like we said, in a lot of cases, you're probably not going to be able to justify it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's impossible. What are some of the concerns you need to work with? Well, in a unionized environment, you don't necessarily need the approval of the union unless your collective agreement says so, but in developing a vaccination policy, you can expect that the union's gonna have something to say. So whether you consult with them upfront or get a framework in place and then either you know, discuss or negotiate it, or whether you say, this is how it is and deal with the consequences, you're going to have some kind of union feedback with respect to that policy, you can guarantee it. Um, you know, you have to have, like any management policy, it has to be reasonable under the general concept of the legitimate exercise of management rights. So again, a mandatory vaccination policy might be acceptable if you can demonstrate that the circumstances warrant it. If there are risks with respect to exposure in the workplace, if there are significant risks with respect to an outbreak that may occur or that has occurred, those are the types of factors that may lead to a determination that, that it'd be okay. Um, in most circumstances, mandatory vaccination, as I said, is gonna be a very difficult um, policy to uphold and, and adjudicators are certainly going to, uh, to look at the balancing of the interest and the fact that, as I said, there has not been a government decree, even in frontline healthcare, that people must be vaccinated. Um, <clears throat> In the non-unionized sector, you have you know, arguably, arguably more flexibility as an employer, but um, you, know, you still need to be conscious of human rights issues with respect to any vaccination policy. And um, you know, if, you, if the legislation doesn't allow it, then you're gonna to have to justify it the same way you would in the unionized sector based on the specific factors uh, in your uh, workplace. Most office environments, would probably not meet that threshold. Um, and again, we don't know exactly what that threshold might be because we have not seen a mandatory vaccination policy um, go through the litig litigation channel all the way yet. Uh, next slide, please. Can you terminate someone's employment for refusing vaccination? You're not gonna get just cause for a refusal here. Even in a circumstance where you might have a valid or defendable, defensible um, mandatory vaccination policy, a termination for cause for refusing that vaccine is not going to, uh, is not going to cut it. <clears throat> Even if it's necessary, as, as we say in some industries, um, you're not going to be able to say, hey, get this or you're fired. And part of that is because there are other alternatives, right? Um, we have other options or we are required to explore other options. Like you see in that last bullet point, employees, you could hold them out of work, move them into a different 
position for a time. Um, doesn't have to be a paid leave. You can put them on unpaid leave if, if there are no alternative positions available. Um, as long as you're considering the circumstances and doing what's right for you uh, in the context of your workplace, as well as human rights issues and or any um, <clears throat> collective agreement issues that may arise in, in the unionized context. So for instance, um, there has been a temporary suspension of um, not all collective agreement rights, but essentially the allowance for employers to supersede collective agreement rights in certain healthcare settings um, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So while those allowances have been in place, employers have had more flexibility with respect to moving people around in response to COVID-19. And that could apply in the context of moving people around who are not vaccinated versus those who are vaccinated. <clears throat> um, again, you know, the biggest difficulty we face is that, you know, and to borrow the phrase that we've all used and heard a million times in the last 15 months, this is unprecedented in our time. And so we don't know exactly how it might shake out in, in case law. However, we're basing it on the principles that we typically consider when looking at policy enforcement. And we know that it's all case specific and you have to justify it based on your particular circumstances. Um, if we can move on, we've got uh, a couple more slides left before we get into the questions. So I just wanna address those briefly. And we've mentioned, or I've mentioned a couple of times the human rights issues. So as we said, you're not gonna get just cause for someone who refuses to get vaccinated. But even before you get to that, if someone's refusing vaccination on the basis of a human rights ground, whether it be a medical issue or religion, then, <clears throat> sorry, yeah, the next, move forward to slide number 20, please. Yeah, um, then you've got a, a, a duty to accommodate. And Arjun talked about what the duty to, to accommodate means earlier, so I'm not gonna go into it. But even when you have a valid vaccine or vaccination policy, you still have to deal with your duty to accommodate. And each one of those cases is gonna be dealt with on its individual circumstances as well. So always be aware that any policy you have is gonna be subject to human rights considerations and certainly the same remains true for any kind of vaccination policy that you have. So th those are the main reasons with respect to vaccination that you would have um, disability or medical reason and uh, religion. So the last slide coming up then please is, what do you do for um, third parties coming into your site? Clients, contractors, and um, what, can you, what can you ask of them? Can you insist that they're vaccinated or pro provide proof of vaccination? Well, certainly you've got to have people complying with the screening protocols and any PPE, personal protective equipment requirements within your workplace. Um, just because they're not your employee doesn't mean uh, they're exempt from your obligations to provide a, a safe workplace. 
where you get into you know the issue of what you can require of those people from an information perspective is if your workplace has different standards for those who are vaccinated versus those who aren't then and your contractors or your clients are going to be interacting with people within your workplace then that stands to reason that you can require that information from those third parties certainly if they're going to be working side by side or um, getting into a discussion with an employee in your workplace, you need to know what protocols need to be followed if you do have different protocols in place. And that may be something that, you know, is in line with your vaccination policy as it develops as more and more um, Ontarians receive first and second doses. <clears throat> Again, though, the human rights considerations apply to these service providers or clients. Um, when we say necessary modifications, I, I think what that refers to is a bit of a lower threshold. Um, your duty to accommodate somebody coming into your workplace as an outside party is lower than someone who is one of your employees or, or, or volunteers or direct clients uh, coming in on an everyday basis. So keep that in mind. And again, it's gonna, it's gonna depend on the specific circumstances. So uh, with that being said, uh, that wraps up the material portion of our presentation. And I know we received a number of questions during the presentation. And I know Brandon has organized those for us. I see one that just came through with respect to uh, making vac vaccination mandatory for newly hired employees. And so it's an interesting one because, um, you know, are there different requirements? Can you have different requirements for new employees versus your existing employees? And while I don't think you can make it mandatory in terms of you know, refusing them employment, uh, there can certainly be conditions attached to that employment depending on the status of their vaccination, right? Um, whether they don't, whether they perhaps don't start until they're vaccinated or until the pandemic's done, um, something like that could certainly be valid. Um, you know, if you have a mandatory vaccination policy for your workplace and, and it's one that you're sticking with and or has been justified, then obviously you're not going to treat new employees differently. But in terms of making requirements different um, for newly hired employees, I think it's tough to say that you could deny someone employment on the basis of non-vaccination if you don't have that mandatory vaccination policy as a justified one in place in your workplace. Um, but again, you're gonna look at different conditions for vaccinated versus non-vaccinated. And, and if it's a matter of not being able to employ someone at the time, then you know that's gonna be, uh, again, fact specific. <clears throat> so I believe everyone can see the slideshow now. This uh, is the first question. <clears throat> and it's a good question and we've seen it come up and it's it's so basically as we saw in, this, in the slideshow there there is now a paid sick leave that they're providing for covid which is 200 per day uh for up to three days right so the question asks is if if an employer offers three paid sick days already um are employees now eligible for an additional three days so do you want to take this kelsey or go, go ahead i've been talking a lot <laughs> yeah sure sure uh so Basically, it's kind of a it's kind of complicated, but I would say if you already provide three days, uh, then the employee is not eligible for an extra three days unless they've already used the three days. So 
if they come into, I think it's April 19th and, and they've already used their three paid sick leave days for the year, I would say then, yes, if, if they fall under the requirements or the eligibility for the, the new paid sick leave, they would be, they would be owed those three sick, paid sick uh, day leaves as well under the, what they're owed under the WSIB. Whereas if they had not used your entitlement yet, then it would not be an additional three days. So like I'm saying, it's quite confusing. <laughs> I would, uh, I would I'd reach out at that time or, um, you know, or look at the legislation. Uh, do you want to try clarifying that, Kelsey? Because I, I put myself in a, in a loop there. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think the simplest way to look at it is that the legislation requires you to draw down any um, existing employment entitlements first. And so if you provide more than three sick days, you're probably not going to get WSIB reimbursement for those days mm -hmm. if they go past that. But if you only provide three, and as Arjun said, they've exhausted those, and yet would otherwise qualify for that time specifically related to COVID, I don't think, I don't think that disqualifies them from um, from these three paid sick days and the, and the the reimbursement from WSIB in that regard. Yeah, and I think one important point um, is that if you provide three paid sick days and they use the three paid sick days, you can't go to the WSIB after and and ask for reimbursement. If, if, if it's already an entitlement that the employee had, the WSIB is basically saying that, well, that's too bad. Then we're not, we're not reimbursing you for that. It's only if you didn't have that entitlement already or if the entitlement had been used up already. So let's go to the next one. So for this question, let's read it. So if an employee advises their employer that someone they live with tests positive for COVID and they must now isolate, what documentation can be requested to validate such a claim if they have not received specific instructions from their public health department? So the way I've been approaching this is that, you know, if an employee goes off um, saying that someone they live with has gotten COVID, so they've been uh, possibly exposed. Well, you know, the general mandate is that they also have to, to quarantine for 14 days. Uh, my understanding is that they don't need to receive a negative COVID test after those 14 days um, because they would have received one originally. So if they have fear of exposure, they would go te be tested. I think that's kind of the requirement to go get tested yourself. And if they have a negative test at that time, then the requirement is only to quarantine for 14 days and then they're free to, um, to go back to normal. Uh, is there anything you want to add to that one, Kelsey? Well, I think in from the employer's perspective, I think uh, I'm, I'm looking at it as this, this, question is being asked to say, I don't believe that the employee actually has to isolate and they just want to be away, right? Um, and, and in that case, um, you know, I, I think it's still a matter of, uh, I'm just looking up the specific section here. Um, the evidence of the entitlement, right? Under, uh, under the leave section, the infectious diseases emergency leave, an employer may require an employee who takes leave under this clause to provide evidence reasonable in the circumstances. That's no, one of the favorite phrases in the legislation. It's reasonable in the circumstances because it leaves it very ambiguous and uh, <laughs> up to interpretation, right? So I, I think, you know, if, if they've got, I guess, an, an indication from their, you know, the, the, their cohabitor, um, a document that says their their test is positive or something like that, right? Um, it is such a broad clause uh, or a broad provision under the ESA that 
you know, it, it's not really easy one, an easy one for employers to challenge. But if you wanted to go down that route, I think it would be reasonable to, to ask, you know, for some kind of documentation about a positive test in order to demonstrate that, um, that it's something that has, that's happened. I mean, I guess my question would be why, uh, you know, I guess it's a staffing issue is what you're concerned about. Um, so, you know, that's, I'd say talk to us and figure out exactly how you go about asking that question. But, you know, there is provision under the ESA to, to get that reasonable evidence, right? And, and I believe my, my previous answer is going to be to a future question. I, I mixed it up with the one that I read previously, so we'll see that come up. But yeah, I, I would agree with Kelsey that reasonable circumstances is likely, if you're saying that the person you live with has COVID, I, we just need some type of proof that the person in reality has COVID. And, and that might just be in the way of a screenshot of the of the positive COVID test, right? It's uh, It'd be hard for someone to argue that that's not a reasonable request, considering they'll be off for 14 days, right? So how can I add temporary layoffs to my employment agreement if they don't already exist? So I'm assuming they mean the employment agreements don't exist, Kelsey? Uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing they don't have a clause in there about temporary layoffs. And so that gets into a whole discussion about yeah. dismissal, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, probably not ideal for the context of this particular webinar, but um, you know, a, a brief discussion of constructive dismissal is, uh, as you've seen with some of the um, you know, cases around COVID, if you don't have the right to lay someone off, just because it's in the ESA doesn't mean you can do it, right? So um, if your employment agreement doesn't provide that right to, temp to put an employee on temporary layoff, then that has been found to be constructive dismissal um, at law absent any con consideration of the infectious diseases emergency leave. So to get it into an employment agreement, you have to provide consideration. If you're talking about a new employee, then it's simple. You just revise your, your employment agreement. If you're talking about existing employees, you have to provide them with either reasonable notice of a change of a, a fundamental term and condition or financial consideration for accepting that change. So those are the two ways to do it. And again, I'd say, um, ask us and, and we'll help you with that. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the quick and dirty version of, of that answer. And like Kelsey said, we could probably spend a whole webinar talking about um, you know, adding provisions to agreements, uh, whether they're existing or new and, and what should be added and how to do it and how to approach that. So that's definitely something you should reach out about. Um, it's definitely a great clause to have in the employment agreement. It goes back to what we discussed earlier with contingency planning. Um, it's funny, I was, I was speaking to, to Brandon before the webinar and I was telling him like, you know, I think I had practiced for about three years before uh, COVID hit and you know, we had temporary layoff clauses in our agreements, but I always had employers tell me, you know, we could probably just get rid of those. I never do temporary layoffs. Just, there's no real need for it. Right. And at that time, I never agreed really, but I always thought to myself, yeah, I don't think I've ever actually helped an employer with a temporary layoff, at least in the employment setting on the union side, uh, in the labor side, you see it a little bit more, but on a, with employers, you don't see it very much. And then COVID hit and, and now is helping employers do hundreds of layoffs, right? So you never really know when these these provisions are gonna help you, but now we've, we've at least seen a case study where uh, employers that didn't have that clause were really left, uh, you know, holding the bag really. So it's, it's 
we it's something we definitely recommend um, adding in and 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 as you as you plan for the future. I would say on the subject of employment agreements, uh, there's a great podcast available under the broadcast tab of our webpage. Episode five of our Lawyers for Employers podcast is called Employment Contracts, aka Every Employer's Best Friend. Um, and uh, you know what? We'll, we'll probably do an update on that sometime. Uh, in the not too distant future because the law is always evolving in that area as well. And what you learn is that employ employment lawyers love talking about employment agreements. So it's, uh, it's a very natural topic for us to discuss again. So uh, you can look forward to that soon. So the next question we have is, is it a protected leave if the employee won't return due to childcare obligations, saying they don't have daycare, but daycare is available and the employee chooses not to enroll them until this fall? Kelsey as the daycare king, he can he can speak to this question. Uh, to, to me, that's not a protected leave, right? The protected leave under the Employment Standards Act is when something is not available. Personal choice is a different issue. Um, now, does that mean as an employer you necessarily want to enforce that? Maybe not, but you know what? Personal choice is personal choice and choices have consequences. Um, that is perhaps a harsh statement and you don't necessarily have to put it to that employee that way. But in terms of strictly answering the question, uh, no, that's not a protected leave because the options are there and it's not a forced um, hiatus from childcare or, uh, or a government shutdown, such as we saw um, earlier, you know, currently are experiencing with respect to the um, uh, you know, school age childcare clients. And I think that's the key there, right? Where if there was no other option for these people, then, you know, you, you say, then it would be a protected leave, right? Because that'd be covered under family status. They, if they have no other option, where do these kids go? What do I do with them? I don't have anyone else to care for them. Then yeah, that seems protected. But if there is an option available, like in this question, if the daycare is available, then them choosing not to send them there is their decision. So uh, to us, that's no, that's no longer job protected. So the next one asks, if an employee refuses to return to work because they don't feel comfortable sending their child to summer camp program with this, so it's the same as the last question, it would not be job protected. If these summer camp programs or daycares are available, uh, then it's it's really, and, and that's kind of what you would say, right? Like, it's really about having a discussion with them saying that, you know, we understand that these, these programs are available to you uh, and we recommend that you use them. If they say no at that time, then then you start getting into a discussion about what's reasonable and and you try because you're making an effort to accommodate. But if they're not willing to participate in the accommodation process, then then they feel their uh, their duty on uh, on their end because it's a it's a two ended spectrum, right? It's it's not just the employer has to provide the the accommodation; the employee has to participate as well. So if they're being unreasonable, then it's then um then then you it's very fair to say that it's no longer job protected. Yeah, and I, I think that that same point can be made with respect to the the idea of if we go back the slide references, um, you know, the the slide ten about refusals to return to work, and I think what they're talking about is the, you know, it mentions caregiver duties for families, possibly in in uh, respect of the job protected leaves, but I think you also have to look at it from an accommodation perspective generally under the human rights code, would it qualify from a family status perspective? And, and again, I don't think the answer is that it does here um, because there's nothing, uh, and family status is a really difficult issue to deal with 
uh, under the Human Rights Code, but you know, in a general sense, um, you know, not having essentially not having childcare arrangements um, by your own choice is, to me, not enough to get you that family status uh, exemption or accommodation um, either. So, just wanted to address that. I mean, similar outcome, um, slightly different lens on it. So if you have an employee who has a doctor's note allowing them to not wear a mask, can the landlord of your office tower still mandate masks and not allow that employee in the building if they cannot wear a mask? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think what you'd have to have here is a discussion with that landlord to say, look, we've got an exemption here. Um, and we have to figure out a way to accommodate. So your because your landlord um, is not your landlord is not liable in the sense of you know from the employee, but by the same token, if they're um, you know not complying with their obligations in terms of service provision, and I'm thinking this on the fly here under the Human Rights Code, employment is not the only area in which there are prohibited grounds of discrimination. Um, and so if that qualified as the provision of services and they're discriminating on, an, um, you know, on a protected ground there, they'd have to, to deal with that. So I think you know, there's, there, you'd have to have a discussion with them about procedures and protocols in terms of being able to accommodate that employee. If it's absolutely, if, if having had that discussion, it's impossible to accommodate them, then it goes down a different road in terms of what that means for you as an employer. And uh, I think we'd have to, to talk specifics at that point. Yeah, I think it's really no different than when someone doesn't want to wear a mask going, or someone is medically exempt from wearing a mask going to public places like a grocery store, right? Uh, is a grocery store under the obligation to accommodate this person? And I believe they are, if there's an actual medical exemption. So I believe that uh, the landlord would be that would not be allowed to, to disallow someone to wear a mask. If you spoke to them and you made it clear that this person is medically exempt from wearing a mask. So it really, this really is a case specific uh, circumstance. Uh, we would definitely assist the employer throughout this process. Uh, I, I can say, I haven't seen this happen yet. It's, and it makes it challenging because you're talking about three different individuals, right? You have the landlord who has their own rules, the employer who can have their own rules, and then the employee who has a medical exemption that goes against most uh, the general sensibilities. So, uh, yeah, definitely reach out if you're actually facing this issue, and we'll we can do another a bigger deep dive and really speak to you about the circumstances related to this. But that's kind of our uh, our, our first look at that. So this is this is the one I, I meant to answer earlier. Does the employee who has been quarantined for 14 days due to exposure need to be tested prior to return to work? My understanding is that they don't. Um, uh, if they if they've done the full 14 day quarantine, then there's no requirement to to be tested, unless I'm um, incorrect, Kelsey. If you know off the top of your head. No, that's my understanding as well. Um, the the testing allows one to come back sooner. I mean, that's been the the guideline from the beginning is 14 days, and if you get tested and you're asymptomatic, then you can come back sooner. And obviously, guidelines and and expectations have changed at various times over the pandemic, but that's still my understanding with respect to the the 14 day quarantine from last exposure. Okay. So I think that's the end of the questions. 
unless we have any more come through, we can give it a minute or two. So I see, uh, Lisa, you've asked, I guess, a follow up to the, um, the building question. Uh, I don't know what a bando is. I'm assuming maybe like just another, like a, like a, a face covering, um, a less restrictive face covering, I think what she's trying to say, like a bandana. Yeah, she said. Okay, okay. <laughs> sorry. I'm not, up, I'm not up with the lingo, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, and th that would be something to, to discuss with the landlord, right? And, and determine what is, um, you know, what's an appropriate accommodation. And, and uh, again, the, the context of accommodation requires you to consider the safety to coworkers and, and other, you know, users of the space, um, as well as cost, right? So um, maybe that would be an appropriate accommodation. I think it'd be, we'd, we'd need to get into some specifics before offering, uh, you know, a pronouncement as to whether or not that's appropriate. Yeah, I think it comes down to discussion with the employee as well, right? Where it's, um, you know, you're not asking why they can't wear the mask, but you're asking what they're willing to do. Because I know even in our workplace, I think that if even if someone had a medical exemption to not wear a mask, there would be a level of discomfort around it. Like we, we everyone's been trying very hard to to socially distance and wear the mask in public and so in public areas in our in our office. So, um, a medical exemption or not, there is just. Uh, a general approach that you'd expect. So you can speak to the employee and see what they're willing to do. And I found in, mo in most circumstances, if you're willing to make an accommodation, employers are generally willing to be quite reasonable as well. So it's uh, that's why it's important to go in with these things with an open mind and, and really uh, try to find a compromise. So I think that's probably all the questions. If, any, if you come up with any more um, after the fact, feel free to give any of us an email or uh, our emails are right here. And uh, we'll be we'll be sure to get back to you. And if it's case specific, we can always schedule a call. Um, otherwise, I want to thank everyone for coming to the webinar today. It's been a treat. Yeah, and I'll give the the usual plug to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. Uh, we have a YouTube channel where you can watch uh, our various video broadcasts, and uh, we have podcast versions of this episode, as well as all of our Lawyers for Employers broadcasts. You can find those podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or as they say, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, thank you very much, everyone. It's uh, always a pleasure to, to have these discussions and uh, we look forward to the next one. And, Kelsey, yeah, and Kelsey alluded to it at the beginning of the webinar, but we do have another one tomorrow uh, for construction specific clients, but uh, obviously anyone's welcome to join that if, if you have some questions in that regard. So uh, we look forward to seeing you there as well and, uh, and have a great afternoon.